I remember the first time that I swore. I was in grade eight, standing in Haley Stewart's kitchen with Haley and her friend Dan. And Dan was like, so Susie, you go to private school now? And I was like, yeah, I do. And because I felt the pressure to prove to them that I wasn't a goody-goody, I was totally a goody-goody. I made sure to insert an, oh my God, in a sentence somewhere, just totally casual, like no big deal, everything is chill. But on the inside, I felt Satan snatch my soul, pause for a second to hack up my heart and then light my brains on fire. It was tough to keep my composure while Jesus and Satan battled for my soul. And so I reached for some crackers and grape juice. The swearing that I did in Haley's kitchen that day was done in fear, fear of rejection. It wasn't done in love. I'm not sure whoever did win that battle of my heart, and if it was Satan, then I'll sure to be set up with some good music. I just remember how insecure I was back then. Every morning I spent so long trying to straighten my hair so it wouldn't fro out, and I'd labor endlessly on my makeup trying to cover up all my zits. I'll never forget my first day in grade nine at Pacific Academy. We were sitting in the gymnasium having an assembly and Gary, who was sitting right behind me, shouted out to everyone, ew, the new girl is Danriff. I wanted to die, but then I didn't want to miss that day's episode of Days of Our Lives. I probably did have dandruff on top of bad skin, big teeth, and frizzy hair. High school is such a frigging emotional boot camp. We all get hit with the tsunami of hormones while we try and figure out how to trick everyone into thinking we're not losers and that we don't do gross things like squeeze our zits or masturbate. We fail classes and get dumped by our boyfriends and our armpits or palms leave sweat marks on clothes and other people and yet we aren't even allowed to drink or listen to really loud angry music. It's a miracle that any of us survive those years. We had to wear uniforms. Our winter uniform was a traditional kilt with either knee highs or tights and our spring uniform was a, a more relaxed skort. Sexy from the front, lame-ass granny shorts from behind. The skort required bare legs, and let me tell you, the pressure was great. Skorts required daily leg shaving, self-tanner application, and a steady diet of carrot sticks and Nutrigrain bars. I remember fussing over how my legs looked when I'd sit down on my desk. I would never sit with my thighs all splayed out, pressed against the cold metal. Hell no! I'd perch them, knees together, with only my toes on the ground. I used to envy the girls with those stick-thin legs, the ones whose thighs didn't rub together or have cellulite peeking out below their skorts, where the fleshy skin met cold metal. My body was strong and athletic, but what I didn't know back then was that it was beautiful, exactly how it was. I also dealt with zits, but they weren't the nice, polite, little red dots, easily squeezed and then dried up with special cream promoted by cute models on TV. No. I had something called cystic acne, otherwise known as under-the-skin zits. Under-the-skin zits are these hot and infected mounds of ouch that grow beneath the surface of the skin. They cannot be squeezed, and if a squeeze is attempted, all that comes out is this clear liquid, leaving behind a lump 100 times the original size. I once had one between my eyebrows and ended up walking out of the bathroom looking like one of the characters from Star Trek. My mom was one of those parents that let me stay home from school when the zits were really, really bad. I recall one day in grade 11, I had six under the skin zits on my face at once. My friends were heading up to Seymour to go snowboarding and I stayed at home reapplying antibacterial cream to my cystic acne. Eventually my mom got sick of me whining about my appearance and one day when I was begging her to stay at home, she told me something I'll never forget. 
a bit cross with me. She said, Susie, you're thinking much too highly of yourself to think that everyone is looking at you and your zits. She was annoyed. She was harsh, but she was right. I often remember her words when I get stuck in my own ego. We can't really engage in life when we're worried about what everyone else will think of us. I say we break out of our prison of worry to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before, even if we do look like a Vulcan. It doesn't take much to get a driver's license in British Columbia because I managed to get one when I turned 16. My uncle Phil taught me how to drive in his Chevrolet Chevette. My knuckles white, my uncle's whiter, I managed to pull whatever courage I had from the recesses of my insecure adolescent body and pour it out onto the roads. With a promise of freedom ahead of me, I left my fears behind. Until I passed a semi-truck on the freeway. It was scarier than playing Bloody Mary at a slumber party. The little car shaking, it felt like we were being sucked in under the truck's trailer. But Uncle Phil taught me something that day. He told me that wherever I look, that is where I will go. If I stare at the semi-trucks in fear, then I will steer into them. If I fix my gaze at the road ahead, then my car will drive straight and strong. I remember a few years back when I was afraid of dogs. I would carry bear spray with me on all my runs until I realized one day that because the spray was always in my hands, the fear of dogs was always on my mind. I decided that I would rather live the rest of my life in peace than in fear, so I got rid of it. When I find myself stuck in debilitating fear, I ask myself what I have been focusing on to get myself stuck. Then I turn my gaze back onto the road ahead and drive my heart straight and strong. My very first car was a blue 1987 Pontiac Firefly. It only had four gears and three cylinders. Each time I climbed a hill, I'd lean forward and hold my breath. Taking it over 80 kilometers an hour on the freeway satisfied my teenage urge for an adrenaline rush. I always parked my Firefly on the side of the road in front of our house. Other drivers hated coming around the corner and near missing my little blue wonder. And so it was no shock to any of us that one balmy summer night, we were awakened by the sound of banging on our front door. It was just the three of us in the house at that time. My parents were sleeping in the room across the hall from me while I slept soundly in my double bed beside my beloved orange cat, Harley. I was startled awake by the combination of banging on the front door and flashing lights assaulting me through my bedroom window. I jumped up and burst into my parents' room to wake them up. My dad, leaving his false teeth soaking in the cup in the bathroom and wearing nothing but his tidy whiteies and a too tight t-shirt, busted out of bed to see what was going on. He stormed down the stairs, whipped the front door open to greet the group of firemen who were asking if a Susan Hutchins lives here. Sitting on the stairs, wearing zit cream on my face, I was too embarrassed to come to the door, so my dad, toothless and half-naked, exchanged some information with a fireman. Apparently, someone had tipped my car over onto its side, and my gas tank emptied into the middle of the road. We got it all worked out, and my dad retreated up the stairs to his bedroom, only to realize that his too-tight t-shirt was a souvenir from a Dina Carter concert, which read, Did I shave my legs for this? We didn't laugh about it that night, but we've made up for it many times since. It's a classic story that goes down in Hutchins' history. Sometimes we come up with these grandiose plans of how we believe our lives will unfold, you know? 
and we prepare ourselves for the good life. Money, success, beauty, prestige, smooth legs. And then sometimes life just happens and we're left standing there, vulnerable and unprotected, wondering who tipped us over when we weren't looking. And in those moments when true character shines through and differentiates between the people who stay tipped over and the ones who get right back up, I'm glad that I am surrounded by the people who get right back up. My dad didn't teach me fashion sense, but he taught me tenacity, and that type of thing can't be bought at a concert. I'm sure you guys have heard this so many times that your eyes will start to glaze over once you catch the gist of my point here, but can I just re-emphasize how much running has helped me with life in general? Especially the tough workouts. Those are golden. The freaking mile repeats, the tempo runs, holy shit and hallelujah, those Those are the gold mines of perseverance I tap into when life gets lifey. The first few treadmill tempo miles are all right. My hair feels cute and swishy. My legs feel light. My gait feels coordinated. And overall, I feel like I could kick everyone's ass. And then I get to the last half of my tempo miles. My hair is stuck in sweaty strands along my back and arms. My legs feel like tanker trucks. I keep staggering a bit to the right, and overall, I feel like the world is kicking my ass. When my body is crying out for me to hit the red button, I slip into a trance. My eyelids hang. My jaw relaxes. Sometimes I even drool. My head tilts a little to the right, as if I'm on my way to sleep. My feet glide along the belt. My hands scoop the air as if to propel me forward, and bit by bit, minute by minute, segment by segment, I get there, and once again, I prove to myself that my will is stronger than my body. Marathon training is all about pushing through, but not too hard, just hard enough, you know, just to get through, but not too through, because then there's nothing left for other things that matter. Most people, out of fear, hold too much back. They just had a baby, or they're too tired, or too depressed, or too fat, or too thin, or too old, or too stressed. Some people, out of fear, push too much through. Whatever we do is either driven by love or is driven by fear. And when we fuck it all up, grace grows in the cracks. The human body is mind-blowing. Two weeks ago, I forced a four-mile tempo run on the treadmill at goal race pace for a sub-three-hour marathon. Initially, I wanted three miles. I'd have been happy with that. But even though that third mile was a struggle, I knew I had one more in me, and I was right. Then the next week, I did it again, except that fourth mile felt a lot like the previous week's third mile. And then today, I did it again. But even though my goal was to keep it at four miles for one more week before bumping it up, I threw down a fifth mile just because I knew I had it in the tank. Mile number five was a struggle today in the same way that mile number four two weeks ago felt like shit. I sweat so much and so hard that my contact flew out of my right eye and I had to run blindly for the last 800 meters. Changing certain behaviors, habits, and reactions take the same kind of discipline and offer the same type of growth. We will often find ourselves being baited and lured into the trap of losing our shit or acting like a bag of dicks except the only person responsible for our reactions is us. Because no matter what, throughout our lives, there will be people and situations that smack us around, but at the end of the day, I can only control me. 
the first time we respond maturely, we will feel foreign, like pooping out Lego or drinking gallons of cheese sauce. But then each time we take the high road, it will feel easier and easier. And before long, before too long at all, we will find ourselves way up ahead. Maybe blind in one eye, but we're there and we won't stop. I still want that sub three marathon. I feel it evolving within me, you know? It started as a teeny tiny snowball and as each day rolls into the next, that sub three dream of mine pulls up what it needs as it gathers speed and momentum, as it grows and moves along and gets primed and ready for its execution. Mark my words, it'll happen. People often ask me what I'm training for and for the last few months, I really haven't been able to give them much of an answer until now. Because today, while I was hammering out some sanity miles on the gym treadmill, I forced myself to go within and ask, why was I doing this? Why do I go to all of this effort to fit in my run each day, especially when I have nothing specific to train for? Because running feeds my vessel, the heart, whatever you want to call it, found deep within my human spirit that produces the energy I need to make healthy, wise, and loving choices. If I were an artist and someone asked me to create grace, I'd sculpt a runner. Wobbly bits, messy hair, tear-stained cheeks, whatever. It's where I find my flow. It's where the vent between me and other is unobstructed. It's the three days between the cross and the empty tomb. My sub three isn't my everything. Running isn't my everything. But running helps me get close just close enough to feel renewed, born again, ready for anything. So when people ask me what I'm training for, I'll tell them I'm training for living.